Hi, this is Pastor Curtis. I want to thank you for checking out the Family Church Podcast. I hope it encourages you and inspires you to take your next step of faith. You can find out more about how to do that at our website, familychurch.xyz. And if you know a friend who needs to hear this message, please forward it on to them. I hope you enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. So good to be back with you this week after our Marriage Encounter Team Weekend last weekend. And real quick, I want to give a special shout out to our dear friends, Pastor Jared Yancey, his wife, Lindsay, for filling in for me last week. Thank you, Jared, for sharing an amazing message that, that really fits seamlessly into our series, Living in His Presence. However, I have, to do, uh, I have to do one thing. There's something I need to address here. You see, with Pastor Jared sharing last week, and then a couple weeks before that, our son Kyle uh, filled in for me when we attended a family reunion. And I've had a couple people come to me and say, uh, Pastor, how come you don't stand when you preach? We noticed that Pastor Jared stood when he preached, and we noticed that your son Kyle, he stood when he preached. How come you don't stand when you preach? Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, Kyle and Jared are both a little bit younger uh, than I am. And, and furthermore, I know for a fact that neither Kyle nor Jared have one of these. Okay? Now, you may ask, Pastor, what, what is that? Well, this is my don't-have-to-stand-when-I-preach card. Some people call it a Medicare card. But this is my get-out-of-jail-free-here-and-I-don't-have-to-stand-when-I-preach. So uh, I would appreciate it if you all would quit asking me why I don't stand when I preach because that's becoming a little bit of a sensitive subject for me. My psyche is already a little bit fragile there ever since I got this card. And, and I know I'm not really old, but, you know, when you carry one of these cards in your mind, you're thinking, man, I don't know, maybe I am getting old, you know. And it didn't help matters last week uh, when we got home from one of our vacation Bible study uh, classes evenings. So uh, Sue and I were looking through some of the pictures because a lot of people took pictures of that evening. So one of the pictures I'm looking at was taken from back there. And I'm looking at it, I'm looking at it, I, 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 I told Sue, I said, who's this old guy sitting on the back row with the bald head? She said, that's you, honey. That's you. So uh, that didn't help matters. But Nevertheless, I do want to thank so much Jared and Lindsay for coming over and filling in for us during that time and helping us connect the dots between this idea of worship and living in his presence. Because the two actually do coordinate. The two actually do go hand in hand. They go to get together. And if you've been here for each of the messages in this series, and if you haven't, I would encourage you to go listen on the podcast. But if you have been here for each of the messages in this series, uh, then you know that there's kind of been a gradual transition from the opening message where we defined what presence means when we talk about living in his presence because there's, we're not talking about the omnipresence because you know, that's, you know, that's the attribute of God where he's everywhere. No, when we talk about living in his presence, we're talking about his manifest, his made known presence. So we started out the first message kind of defining that and then gradually we've been transitioning into this how we invite his, from what to the how. How do we invite his presence? Which is through praise and worship. The problem is, the problem is that's not always an easy thing to do. I mean, come on, when the bills are paid, you know, there's money in the bank, marriage is good, kids are making good grades, everyone's healthy. Hey, it's easy to live in his presence then. You think, I got this living in his presence thing down. But what about those times when things aren't going so well? What about those times when we encounter difficult or challenging situations, sometimes a crisis even? What do we do at those points? Because then it's not so easy to live in his presence. But how do we continue to do that? Can we even do that? Well, the answer is yes, and the story we're going to look at in the Bible this morning kind of shows us how that plays out. 
Because this same thing, this unexpected crisis, actually happened to a guy in the Bible once. It happened about 430 B.C. to a king who had a name that only God and a mother could love, Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat. How brutal would that have been growing up with the name Jehoshaphat? All right. So those of you who think you have nothing to thank God for, if nothing else, you get up every morning and you say, thank you, Jesus. My mama did not name me Jehoshaphat. But seriously, he had a funny name, but he was a good king. He was a good king. In fact, he was one of an elite group of only five good kings who ruled over Israel. If you look at the record, the, the time of the kings, which spanned about almost 600 years from the time of Saul till, till the time of the destruction of, uh, of, of Judah, there were 38 kings that ruled over God's people. Of those 38, only five were God-fearing good kings. Jehoshaphat was one of them. During his reign, he cleaned up the idolatry in the land. He established some spiritual reforms. He sent judges throughout the land to handle disputes fairly among the people. In other words, he was doing all the right things. Jehoshaphat was doing all the right things, which leads us to this very important truth. Living in his presence does not exempt us from crisis moments. You look at Jehoshaphat's life, and you see a guy who was actively pursuing God's presence. How do we know that? Because of his commitment to steer the people back from idolatry to worshiping Yahweh, the true and living God. So, yeah, he might have had a funny name, but one thing that you could not deny was his passion for worship. He was all about living in God's presence. But like Jehoshaphat, we too can be living in God's presence, doing all the right things, and still we wake up one day facing a crisis, and you don't know what to do. And barring divine intervention, something's not going to end well for you, right? This valley of crisis occurred for Jehoshaphat around 430 B.C., and here's how it played out. 2 Chronicles 20 is where we're going to be looking at this morning, the text. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 1. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites with some of the Meonites, in some translations say Mount Seir, which was the capital of Edom, which would have been the Edomites. So the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, right? They all joined forces to come against Jehosh Jehoshaphat. Verse 2. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It's already in Hazaz and Tamar, that is Engadai. Now, this is a very important part of information, piece of information because it tells us that these armies that were coming against them were about 90 miles away. So that would be like from here to Manhattan, all right? So King Jehoshaphat, he gets word from one of his messengers that, hey, these, these enemy nations surrounding us, they made a pact together. And they decided to come against us. And man, unless God does something, in about four or five days, we're history. There is no more future for us. As I think of that, as I tell that, I got to thinking about maybe someone in here this morning. Maybe you've had that kind of announcement. Maybe you got a message from a doctor, oncologist, the bank, right? that the enemy is marching on you, he's marching on your body, marching on your health, marching on your marriage, maybe marching on your relationship with a prodigal child, marching on your finances, and unless God does something, it's not going to end well for you, right? That's the type of situation Jehoshaphat found himself in. And how we respond, listen, dear ones, how we respond in times like that is huge. How we respond when we're facing with a crisis, especially an unexpected crisis we didn't see coming, 
is the key to whether or not we'll be victorious or not. So how did Jehoshaphat respond to this devastating news? Let's read it. Verse 3, after getting this message that the enemy nation surrounding them had made a pact and decided to come against them, this is what Jehoshaphat, this is what it says about Jehoshaphat. Verse 3, then Jehoshaphat was afraid. You know, I like that. It says he was afraid. It doesn't say he feared God. It says he was scared. He was scared. And I love this part of the story for this reason. It shows us that fear in the face of a crisis doesn't exempt us from being people of faith. I mean, that's a human response. We've all been there. I mean, something that just came out of left field, you didn't see it coming, and, and, and sometimes they're so dead, it's like it's, you get physically ill, it's so bad. It's like a kick in the gut, right? And I got to tell you, there's just something comforting about Jehoshaphat's initial response here. It's so raw, it's so human, because I'll be honest with you, I, I have a hard time with those people, Christians, who any time that they face a crisis, they get real spiritual on you. Ever known someone like that? You know, they, you know they're hurting, but man, they're not going to let on. No, 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 no. My wife just told the SUV, praise God. Just found out the kids got to have five cavities filled. It's going to be 450 apiece. Hallelujah. Right? My wife just told me that she's leaving me. Praise, thank you, Jesus. Hey, really? Are you kidding me? Right. Trying, to, trying to put up a front in the face of an otherwise very tragic situation. I struggle with people like that. I mean, to me, that's like whistling while walk, walking by the cemetery. You're just putting up the front there. To me, you know, you, come on, you got to own that. Hey, look, that's a human response. You don't stay there. But when something like that, when you're facing a crisis, it's okay to be afraid initially. Don't put up that. And, and the reason why this is important, people that do that, people that put up a front, they tend to respond in the flesh when, when they do encounter that, when they do battle it. I think to me one of the best examples of someone who has found this balance between walking in his presence in a genuine way but still lives in the reality of the pain and suffering that we encounter in this life at times is a guy by the name of Dennis Kickler, and he was here at the first service. I don't know if he's here now, but see, you listen to Dennis talk, and he's always speaking truth, and he's always speaking faith, never speaking doubt or negativity, but, but, it's, but, but it's, not, it's, it's not fake. It's, it's very genuine. It's not forced, but spoken in a genuine manner of love and grace. Love and grace resulting from his own crisis that I'm sure left him feeling like he had been sucker punched because there are a few things more hurtful and devastating than having to bury your own child. Because that's a hurt that's never going to go away, this side of heaven. But through that, through that, God has given him and Pam both a passion and platform for ministry to young people. It's genuine, and you can tell it's genuine. Again, the problem with people, the problem with people who aren't honest and real with God during a time of crisis is they tend to resort to human efforts to guide them through the crisis, and that doesn't work. It doesn't work because, and this is huge, most of our battles were birthed in the spiritual realm. Thus, we need to confront them at the spiritual level, and that's exactly what Jehoshaphat did. Watch this in verse 4. After getting this news, this devastating news, and after that initial shock of just, oh man, what are we going to do here? It says that he set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. In other words, he worshiped. That's what he did. He worshiped. After that initial uh, back-against-the-wall jolt of fear upon hearing this 
unexpected, devastating news, Jehoshaphat's very next response was born out of a relationship with God. Jehoshaphat turned away from the problem and turned towards the problem solver and proclaimed a fast. Now, I really debated on how much to say about fasting because honestly, this is a, it's really a topic for another sermon. The truth is, since we don't like to fast and since there's so much we don't know about fasting, most people just don't do it. Right? We just don't do it. I have yet to meet the person that says, you know, Pastor, I just love fasting. And if, if they, anyone ever tells you that, they're lying to you. I'm just telling you right now, they're lying to you. Fasting by nature is self-denial. It's not something that we necessarily should like. Look, I know fasting doesn't appeal to me, right? Pardon the pun, but I'm, I'm a slow faster. Right? I'm the type of person, like, if I was going to declare a fast for the church, I'd say, okay, folks, this next week we're going to spend some extended time in fasting, so i uh, tell you what, be prepared to do that. And I'm like, let's go ahead and launch this thing with a banquet tonight, okay? How about a potluck dinner tonight to launch this fast? See, that's the type of guy I am, right? You'd love me, right, if I was going to do that. But perhaps that's part of the problem. We tend to associate fasting strictly with food, and it's not. Fat, fasting is simply unplugging or disconnecting from the world at whatever level the world is hindering your relationship with God. That's why, honestly, you think about it, in this day and age, a social media fast is probably just as effective just as effective as a food fast, right? And you know I'm telling the truth regardless of what you're thinking right there, right? Jesus basically said two things about fasting, and then we'll move on. And honestly, if we knew nothing else about fasting but what Jesus said, it would be enough. But real quick. Here's what Jesus said. Number one, he said there were certain powers of darkness that couldn't be broken apart from fasting. And that statement was made in the, I think it was Mark chapter 9, but it was made in the context of one time when the disciples were praying over a demon-possessed boy, and the, the boy, the demon was still there when they got done praying. So they go tell Jesus. Jesus goes, prays for the kid, bam, demons are gone. So they asked Jesus, what gives Jesus? How come when we prayed for him, the demon didn't come out? And that's when Jesus said, that this kind comes out only by much prayer and fasting, all right? The other thing that he said, and, and it wasn't a specific statement, but just kind of in the context of sometimes when he was teaching about, and he would reference fasting, and he made it clear that he expected the church, the New Testament church, the Latter-day church, to engage in times of prayer and fasting. When you read through the Gospels, read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's very clear that fasting was an expectation that Jesus had for his church. But again, that's for another sermon. The very next thing, after declaring a fast, all right, seeking God, the very next thing that happens is Jehoshaphat begins to pray. And, and this is a huge part of the narrative because this is, where, this is where Jehoshaphat transfers the battle from his camp to God's camp, all right? This is where Jehoshaphat throws himself at the mercy of God and basically tells God, God, if you don't do something, I, it's not going to be good. I, I got nothing for this God. I got nothing for this, right? And when you look at this prayer, and we're going to in here in just a second, but it is a fascinating study in how to pray faith-generating prayers. How can you pray in a way that builds your faith while you're praying? Would you like to do that? Three of you would like to do that. Come on. Here we go. Here's the prayer. Verse 5, And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court, and said, verse 6, O Lord, God of our fathers, again, this is his prayer. After declaring a fast, he, began, he calls out to God, 
God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? Now, that's, that's, not, that's a rhetorical question. He's basically declaring, God, you are God in heaven. You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. So he begins with this rhetorical question. And he's essentially declaring, Lord, you are the God who dominates over all the affairs and the nations of this world. You are the God that is bigger than it all, and all powers in your hands. Then in verse 7, he transitions to reciting God's faithfulness in the past. And this is a huge key component to praying faith-generated prayers. He says in verse 7, Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel, and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. In other words, he's not just reminding God of his faithfulness to fight for them in the past. By mentioning this, he's also reminding the people of God's faithfulness towards them. See, as the king, he knows, look, he knows what resources he has. He knows how many foot soldiers he has. He knows how many weapons, in his ar- how many weapons are in his arsenal, how many chariots, uh, spears, and all that kind of stuff. So Jehoshaphat could have done probably what you and I would have done if we were king, right? We take in, we get this, we get this devastating news, this, we're facing this crisis, so we, st- we start taking inventory of our resources, try to figure out what we have and what we don't have. To kind of, you know, take, and then, and then whatever we don't have, we ask God to take up the slack, right? You're facing, you're facing a huge financial mountain. So, you know, let's see, well, we got this much in savings. If I work some overtime, yada, yada, yada. And then, and then, and then God, if, if, if I can't climb out this way, then be there and then I'll, then I'll, I'll invite you into this, right? Well, look, God's not our, our backup plan, Right? He either fights for us or he doesn't, and it's got to be that way, right? We either fight our battles or we let God fight our battles. There's no in-between. This isn't, a, this isn't a tag team wrestling match. Okay, God, you stay over there in the corner. If I need you, I'll come over and then slap your hand and you come in. No, it doesn't work that way. This is God fighting for us or us fighting, and if we're fighting, guess who's responsible for the outcome? We are. But if God's fighting, guess who's responsible? He is, right? And the sooner we learn that, the better equipped we'll be when we do face a crisis or find ourselves under attack. Then look how Jehoshaphat kind of ties a bow on this prayer of faith, crying out to God for help. Verse 12, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We don't know what to do. We don't know what to do, God. But our, look at, but our eyes are on you. Folks, this part of the prayer just reeks with humility. God we don't know what to do. We got nothing for this, but we're believing you to help us through this. This is a man on his knees, humbly and sincerely crying out to God. So please, please capture a picture of this, folks. No uncertainty, no trepidation. Is Jehoshaphat, and this is, a, this is an important point, Jehoshaphat showed no shame in just coming to God and laying it out there. God, we don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. See, we're hearing from a man who is confident in his approach to God. Confidence that comes from living a life of worship in his presence, yes, but also confidence that's grounded in a faith that was established and strengthened by God's goodness towards them in the past. Then at the end of the prayer, it says that the Lord spoke through a prophet by the name of Jehaziel. But, and this, this is interesting to me, that the writer inserted this short little narrative between the end of Jehoshaphat's prayer and the word from the Lord that they're going to give. The prayer ends with this statement. Jehoshaphat says, God, we don't know what to do, 
but our eyes are on you. Then, as if the scene wasn't already sad and pathetic enough, the writer informs us in verse 13, Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Wow, how pathetic of a scene is that? And it was at that moment, that moment of desperation, that the Lord spoke to the people. And the prophecy is found in verses 14 to 17. But basically what the Lord told them is best summarized in verse 17, where he says, you will not need to fight. Again, this is from the Lord. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. By the way, that is the exact same thing the Lord told the children of Israel as they stood before the Red Sea, and Moses stood there with a staff. And right before he parted the Red Sea, he said the exact same thing. You will not stand still. You will not have to fight this battle. I'll fight it for you. It goes on, O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. He actually said that twice. He said it back up in 15, verse 15 too. Tomorrow, tomorrow, go out against them and the Lord will be with you. And then in the next verse, we see Jehoshaphat's response to this word that came through the prophet Jehaziel. Verse 18, then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down, fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Let's read on, verse 20. And they arose early in the morning. Man, wasn't service great yesterday? You ever woke up Monday morning? You leave here Sunday, man, you're fired up, you're pumped up. Man, wasn't worship great? Wasn't that a good word? Then Monday morning, oh, yeah, oh, let's see, what do I got going on this week, right? I can imagine Jehoshaphat getting up the next morning after this word from the Lord, wipes the sleep from his eyes, walks over to the window and peeks out, and all he sees on the horizon is a bunch of ites, Moabites, Edomites, Ammonites. I don't know. Yeah, they're still there. They're still there. So what do we do? What do we do when the spiritual high we were riding on Sunday morning isn't quite the same on Monday morning? We do what Jehoshaphat did here. We remind ourselves of the word of promise and encouragement that God spoke to us the day before. It says, and when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, hear me, Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem, believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets because the word came through the prophet." and you will succeed. So early the next morning, Jehoshaphat gathers everyone together and encourages them by reminding them of what the Lord had told them the day before, that they would not have to fight, that the Lord would fight for them. Then Jehoshaphat does something else that shows why he was one of the good kings. Look at verse 21. And when he had taken counsel with the people, so look, first thing, right off the bat, watch this, he consults with the people. Why? Isn't he the king? Can, I mean, can he just do whatever he wants? Well, he is, you know, and he can. But any good king knows that part of winning the battle includes the people taking ownership of the battle, right? You got to have every, if you're going to take a stand against the enemy, you better have everyone on board, right? Then they hear Jehoshaphat's strategy, and, and this, is, this is all the more reason why everyone needs to be on board. Because when they hear Jehoshaphat's strategy for going into battle, it was one of the most bizarre things. That, in fact, I, I don't think any king before or since had ever implemented this type of strategy. 
says, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. So after reminding everyone what the, Lord, what the word of the Lord was the day before, right, that, that we don't have to fight, God's going to fight for us, and then consulting with some of the people, Jehoshaphat devises a plan. So he grabs the bullhorn, says, all right, everyone, all right, everyone, I want, I want the army up here, and all the army lined up here. We got the foot soldiers, got the archers, the, the spear holders, the chariots, get them all lined up, and then after they get all lined up, he says, okay, now I want the worship band. I want the worship team. I want them to come up, and I want them to get in front of the army. And about that time, April and Sam and Lauren and Gage are like, what? Did, did he say he wanted us in front of the army? Because, see, if, if, if they would have heard, if the worship team would have heard that, if they would have known that was the case, they would have called in that, they would have called Zach, Zach that, hey, Zach, Zach, I can't, I can't come in this, I got, I got laryngitis, I can't, I can't leave worship this morning, right? The reason Jehoshaphat used this strategy, the reason he put the worship band in front is because the word of the Lord was, you don't have to fight this battle. That's why he did that. It wasn't just an arbitrary, hey, I've I got an idea, let's send the worship. No, the reason he did that was because the word of the Lord was they weren't going to have to fight the battle, Right? And in that strategy, we see that Jehoshaphat had something, an understanding of something that we all need to have an understanding of. We need to come to terms with this phrase right here, and it is this, worship is warfare. Every time, every time we worship, we are engaging in spiritual warfare at some level. Here's why. When we worship, we're drawing closer to God. And the closer we get to God, the greater threat we pose to our enemy. So anytime you worship, you better count on it, folks. You're, you're in warfare. You are in warfare, right? So this is our strategy, folks. Going to put the worship band in front. You guys are going to march out, the worship band in front, and the army behind them. So did it work? Did it? Well, let's read. Verse 22. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, or Edomites, who had come against Judah so that they were routed. Verse 23, For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Edom, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the Edomites, they helped to destroy. Then they turned on each other. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? When the enemy nation, listen, when the enemy nation looks down from the hillside and they see, and they see this posturing outside the gates of Jerusalem, and they see the army, they, they, they see the army there in the chariots and everything, but then it's like, wait, 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 it looks like they got their, looks like they got the choir, they got the worship band out in front of the army, right? What's going on here? My personal opinion is the reason that Moabites, Ammonites, and Edomites got so confused when they were about to advance in battle was because they looked down expecting to see a platoon of soldiers carrying weapons and riding chariots with spears and shields, but instead... They saw the worship team. They saw the, they saw, they saw, they saw the skinny jeans all lined up in front of the army. It's like, what in the world is going on down there? And they became so confused that they turned on each other. Look, I don't know how it played out. It was a miracle, obviously. But here's what we need to understand. Worship was the haymaker. Worship was the counterpunch. Worship was the sucker punch. The enemy didn't see coming, 
right? Just like Jehoshaphat didn't see the, the, the attack coming against him by the enemy nations around them, so also did the strategy against the enemy catch them off guard. The story concludes, verse 24, when Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. Verse 25, when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, and precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. They were three days taking the spoil because it was so much. The Bible says confusion came over all the hosts, and different armies began to fight each other. And by the time the armies of Judah got there, all that was left was a bunch of dead bodies because they had turned on each other. They were totally destroyed by their own devices. And all that was left for God's people to do by that point, by the time they got there, was go through, gather up all the booty, all the gold, all the silver, all the Bitcoin, all the Rolexes, all that stuff. That's all they had to do. So the next time you're facing a crisis that catches you off guard, and in the natural, you have no good options. You would do well to remember that worship is warfare. And there are times when the words of Jesus echo loudly in our spirit when he said, the kingdom of God allows for violence and the violent break in upon it. Some translations say suffer violence and the violent take it by force. He's talking about spiritual warfare there, folks. So when the enemy comes marching against us, and we find ourselves face-to-face with a crisis we don't know how to handle, after that initial shock, after that initial jolt, where you're afraid, we do what Jehoshaphat did. What did he do? Number one, he, he sought the Lord. We seek the Lord. And then we fast. If God calls you to fast, by all means, do it. And then we look to God's Word, see what God has to say, and then lastly, we engage the enemy fearlessly, in praise and worship. I want to invite the worship team to come and prepare and lead us into God's presence. All the skinny jeans folk, come on up. All you skinny jeans, come on up. A couple weeks ago, we talked about Solomon asking God to teach him something that his father couldn't do, which was going out. Remember that when when, when God says, ask anything and I'll give it to you? Solomon says, I can't do something that my father could do and I want to be able to do that. And that was, he knew how to go out and come in. And we said that that phrase is actually a military term, right? It's a military term. Well, a few weeks ago when we began this series, in Living in His Presence, we came in. We came in. And now it's time to go out with His presence. We came into His presence, now it's time to go out with His presence. And we go forth in praise and worship. You know, some of you, the enemy has tried to hit you so hard. Maybe you feel like he knocked the song out of you. But he didn't. You can still praise God. In fact, that's why it's such a good strategy. He cannot, the enemy cannot figure out how we can still sing. How, how people struggling with infertility who have tried for years to have a child, how they can still come to church on Sunday morning and lift their hands and praise God. How can someone who receives a discouraging report from the oncologist still show up on Sunday morning with praise on their lips? How can that person who's been dealt knockout blow after knockout blow still clap their hands and sing praises to God? It confuses him, folks. He doesn't expect those who are intimidated and fearful to be able to muster the strength 
to sing and to worship. He doesn't expect those who have been pummeled by problems all week to be able to shout. Our worship is an ambush. We gather and we open our mouth and we clap and we lift our hands in praise and we ambush the enemy. Worship strikes a devastating blow to the enemy. Our enemy learned to weaponize fear and sickness and strife. It's time for us as God's people to weaponize worship because that's what it is. It's a weapon. So, as the worship team leads us into battle, listen to me, as they lead us into God's presence, I don't know what's been marching against you or marching on you, but the word of the Lord to us this morning is it's time for you to march on them. Why? Because this is how we fight our battle.